Well, hello, we've got a new podcast. Yep. And um, my name's Matthew Graham. Uh, my name is James Henry. Uh, we don't even have a title for our podcast. No. But we will think of one. And it will be pretty succinct and erudite and yeah, might correct. make you think. Yep. Uh, yeah, and James will come up with that probably in the I'll next come up, couple yeah. of I could just minutes. edit that in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we decided well, it was about time that two white dudes finally had a podcast. It's time for us to have our moment oh, in the spotlight, James. Finally. Jesus. Let's get our perspective on yes. the world. Uh, <laughs> God knows the world needs it. <laughs> no, we will be talking about uh, script writing. This will be a sort of script writing-ish podcast. But it's also an excuse to fend off coronary heart disease. <laughs> yeah, that's because always nice. we're going yeah. to do most of our podcasts in the open air, yeah. walking... We um, both are very fortunate to live in one of the finest places in the world, which is um, the southwest corner of Cornwall. Mm. And we get to walk by the sea and talk. And, and occasionally talk. we might thematically link our walks. So, for example, we may wish to discuss the works of Lawrence Kasdan. We may wish to discuss Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we will relive Raiders of the Lost Ark by walking near to old buildings. That's good enough. Mm. Yeah, a giant ball rolling down on us at some point. If we can arrange that. <laughs> might have to sort of edit that in again. So we're walking today from Flushing. Uh, there's a lot of diegetic sound, there's crunching leaves. I haven't edited that in, it's real, real sound. We're walking from Flushing to Milo. In fact, we're going to walk past a house which everyone in Cornwall is convinced that Madonna lives in. Yes, the, the, uh, the Mock Tudor house. The Mock Tudor house, which apparently, this is, I looked this up, apparently the whole house floated down from, it's completely out of keeping with any other house in Cornwall. It's like Mock Tudor and beams and stuff. Yeah. It, was, it was brought down on a boat. Wow. I don't know how you do that. So hang on, it was brought down as a whole house. I on the boat. honestly don't know. But apparently it was brought out on the boat from, I don't know, like the Thames Estuary or somewhere, somewhere posh. And they, they can't brought it down in one If they go. brought it it's down massive. as a whole house, people could carry on living in it yeah, to well, a degree, couldn't exactly. you? You could sort of have tea and look out the window and watch the You could move walk. very slowly, yeah. yeah. But so we'll look out if Madonna's there, that would be very nice. That would be fantastic. But that's just a bonus. Yes. That'd be a bonus. Not the purpose of the podcast. No. So if you're tuning in to this podcast um, because you think each week we meet a famous uh, <laughs> pop icon yeah. and talk to her or him about their life in music, yeah. you will be slightly disappointed. That's a show. Other I uh, pop icons that have Dan's Cornwall, uh, Tori Amos? Yes, I hear. Yes. Uh, she's up in, am I right in thinking she's sort of Padstow Way or something? I think she has a recording studio there, so I think that's where she hangs out quite a bit. Nice. Yeah. Currently we are Tori Amos and Madonna Free, but we'll, we'll shout if they... There's also up. one other claim to fame, Flushing, and again, this may be apocryphal, but I'm going for it. There's a very beautiful, pretty pink cottage oh. right on the Penryn River that someone told me was once the second home of Piers Brosnan. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah. And another one is uh, Roger Moore used to have a home down here. Ah. Oh. Which, um, not in Flushing, but somewhere in Cornwall, which got very confused at our school because we were quite little. And I got confused that James Bond lives here. <laughs> and I distinctly remember my friend from uh, the road behind me telling everyone in real seriousness that he'd seen a load of ninjas coming out of a helicopter and going into a house <laughs> because that's where James Bond lived. Uh, we need you to save the world, 007. Yeah. I'll be on it directly. It'll take a while. <laughs> I'll get the sleeper. No mucking about. <laughs> yes, that would be nice. Yes. So um, we are both um, writers for the screen. Yeah. Um, it's always a, a little bit awkward trying to work out when someone asks you what you do for a living, whether you say screenwriter, scriptwriter, or just writer. Um, and I would be delighted to know what James thinks about that slight um, uh, conundrum of, uh, of, of etiquette. Um, I do think, I feel writer always sounds a bit tossy. Mm -hmm. It sounds a bit 18th century, that uh -huh. you have a quill. Yes. 
Uh, Samuel what, Johnson. A bit Samuel Johnson. Yeah. Uh, I haven't got scrofula or Tourette's, <laughs> so I don't feel like I am modern day Samuel Johnson. Um, no, I'd, I'd say scriptwriter. So that sounds a bit more journeyman-ish, doesn't it? Or a bit more technical. Yes. Writer does sound a bit grand sometimes. Um, it's letting a car go past. Uh, I think that's a very good point because um, the thing about script writing um, is that it is as much a technical endeavour as it is a creative one. Um, mostly, I'd like to think it's a creative endeavour, and it is. Um, and it, it's not that w the technical aspect of screenwriting eats into the creative aspect. It is just that the two run side by side and occupy a very similar amount of space. Um, as, as you know, a script is a blueprint for a production, and a production is usually quite expensive. And so the script has to take that kind of responsibility. It has to be affordable in the budget. It has to be um, mindful of locations. It has to be mindful of number of cast. It has to be mindful of number of big you know, action sequences. James Henry is you know, not averse to putting in you know, an airship attack into an episode. Of, I do like airships. He, do, he does like airships. Um, and um, we have to be mindful of that. And so, and then, of course, rewriting around production issues. So there's a lot of technicality involved in script writing. I'm trying to avoid the, the C word, Ooh. which is, that's no, all right, it's craft. <laughs> the people yes. say, say craft, you get a bit like, oh. No. Yes. Maybe on two of us. Well, I did, I was talking to so my wife, who's a copywriter, she's a, she's a proper writer. She's a copywriter, she writes yes. technical stuff. Um, but I was saying a weird thing is, Sometimes you have a day and you're writing and you're not in the mood for it at all and you just, oh, and you grudge, you sort of grind it out. That is most days. That's I most, been, it is yeah. most days, I'll be honest. And you look at it and other days you have days, I'm fly, I'm absolutely crushing it. And you write a ton of stuff. And then when you look at it like a week later, you cannot, so there's no difference in quality between the stuff you did in a foul mood where you weren't feeling it and the stuff you did when you thought you were kind of on fire. And uh, I said to my wife, it's just weird. And she went, no, no, that's craft. And I thought, oh, well, someone else is saying that's probably true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But there is a sort of subconscious level of you know, nuts and bolts stuff, which even if you're in a bad mood and you're not feeling it, you should still, there's a certain level of hopefully competence that comes through. Oh I God, think, I, I think feel bad saying that. Uh, no, I think that's absolutely true. And um, I have to say, a, a, a few years ago, I'm trying to think maybe four years ago, I was um, in the, in the in enjoyable and enviable position of writing, uh, adapting a short story of Philip K. Dix for a, a sort of a Channel 4 and Amazon co-production called Electric Dreams, um, where writers got to pick a short story. And what was lovely was we got to pick our own short story. And uh, from 144 short stories that um, PKD wrote, um, and um, adapt it as a one-hour uh, TV film. And uh, PKD is not known for his jocular, happy-go-lucky storylines. <laughs> They're usually pretty dark, pretty dystopian. Um, so I found myself, I chose this one called The Hoodmaker, and I found myself in this very dystopian world writing about it. And um, uh, I worried that I wouldn't possess the, 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 the emotional eeyoreness that was required um, to, to really do this justice. But at the time I was having a bit of a rough time in my life and I was feeling quite low and quite beleaguered and quite worried about things. And of course, didn't really feel very in inclined to even write. I felt mostly inclined to drink whiskey and stare moonfully out of the window. Um, but what happened was I did write because I'm a professional and I was being paid and I knew I had a deadline. And it informed my writing. I actually think it made the script tonally stronger it was coming from a, a slightly darker 
Sad I can see that. Yeah. So I, I write a lot of. Uh, morning. morning. Hello. Oh, let's go to dog walkers. There is a. Uh, we're at a lovely headland now. Hello. Oh, it's a lovely spaniel. Yes, we're on a beautiful Easily, headland. Easily distracted by spaniels now. Spaniels running. It's lovely. Oh, there's some boats. Mm, got the spinnaker. No, they haven't got their spinnakers out. It's like the one boat word I know. Was a I spinnaker. love the way you just threw. Just threw a spinnaker in there, and then, and then lost your nerve about whether yeah, or not I've, there were any. Spinnakers. I pulled back at the last minute. I don't think that's a spinnaker. I think that's a small sail on the front of a boat, but not an actual spinnaker. But uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, so I write, I write more comedy. I tend to write comedy with a bit of drama in, and I would say Matthew writes drama with secretly bits of comedy in. Yes. I think so. Enough. There's a whole yin and yang thing going on there. Yeah. yeah and I, I, I write comedy in absolutely terrible mood sometimes. But it kind of doesn't matter because it comes from a different, you know, I don't, I don't know any comedy writer who sits there chuckling as he writes. <laughs> no, oh, no. And I've been in writers room, comedy writers room and, you know, you may as well, we may as well be writing EastEnders or something. You're it's absolutely right. The grim. worst thing you can do is write a line, think it's funny and then read it out to your partner. <laughs> I've actually dashed upstairs oh, no. in a state of high excitement saying, Emma, <coughs> Emma, listen to this, Emma, Emma. So he says and this, then. and then he comes back with this, mm. and you see the polite smile, and that, oh, oh that's no. really good. The yeah. polite smile is it's just awful. The other thing is, is giving a partner uh, something to read that you've written, if it's, if it's a comedy thing, and then when they laugh, you go, what, why, why, which, which bit? Why are we laughing at that bit? What was that bit? And just, oh, just let them, let them enjoy it, if they want to. <laughs> you know, if they're not, if they chuckle sometimes, you think, I don't know. So James, why did you become a scriptwriter? How did you become a scriptwriter? How did I become? I really, I just, I just tripped over a big stone. Oh, that nice. That's, 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 that's real. That's action, real. Action, real. Uh, clearly, I can't talk and walk at the same time. Um, well, I wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer because I'd like literally know where the skill. And that was the one thing at school. People went, "Oh, that's your story." And I thought, that's it. I'm doing that then. I can't do anything else. Um, I went to university at Derby. I wanted to go to East Anglia, but I got terrible A level, so I ended up at ah. Polytechnic of Derby. Um, and they had a script writing course, and I thought, this is amazing, this fills loads of pages quite easily, <laughs> quite quickly. You can, you can do that five pages, and you can just not, not even have that many words. Mm. But I think I used to get hung up on, I wanted to write prose, and I'd get really hung up on the character in a short story. If they cross a, if they cross a room and then go out the door, like do you describe the carpet, do you describe how much they turn the door handle, I used to get really hung up on that sort of stuff. And in script, you just go, he goes out the room. In fact, you probably cut before the point of him going out the room. You don't need the character going out the room. And it's something kind of clicks. And I thought, oh, I like this. This is a very efficient way of telling a story. Um, and then what did I do after that? And I thought, yeah, I came out of university and I thought, well, if I haven't got a full-time job as a scriptwriter within a year, I've failed. Yes, yes. So a year later, Some I was working in a factory thinking, uh, <laughs> this didn't work out at all. But uh, um, well, I started doing radio. I just sent in for those competitions. Uh, so I, play for, I wrote scripts for radio com uh, competitions and stuff. I got really useful feedback. Um, like, this is terrible, but here's why, which is quite a good feedback. And I was trying to write comedy stuff, and I gave it to my best mate to read, and she went, yeah, this certainly reads like it ought to be funny. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, oh, that hurt. But also grain of but truth. But was she in comedy? Because no, no, she's no. just no, she's because uh, I do notice comedy commissioners tend to talk about things being funny without laughing. Oh no, comedy! A lot of so many comedy people are sort of dead inside. Yes, and then so many drama people are just lovely and funny and yes, because they have all to get all that darkness out. Whereas comedy people are just sort of a lot of them have evolved beyond the comedy. They, I they, find they, they nod sagely, like yeah. they're, they're kind of like sommeliers or um, <laughs> they are, or what those guys who smell perfumes and oh, scents yeah. and are very serious yeah. about. It's an oaky. Yes. 
this is moderately funny with a touch of pathos yeah. and it could move into the satirical space but you're not laughing you're actually looking quite cross <laughs> yeah you don't know if that's good is that is this good i don't know because this is very broad and i get but, uh, uh, yes yes <laughs> i mean supposed to be is that good laurel and hardy was broad i don't know well i think after that after that excellent note from my best mate uh, I just thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just write stuff that I find funny then. And it, it kind of clicked after that. So then I won, um, there's a Channel 4 competition for sitcom writing, which I won the younger age group, because I was very young. Yeah. Young and gorgeous, What were you, like, 20, full of life. mid-20s or early 20s? Or? I think early 20s. Early 20s. I can't even remember, to be quite honest. Um, it's so long ago. It was 1999. Aha. Uh -huh. I, can't, I can't do the maths and walk at the same time. No, no, no. But yeah, early 20s. Yeah. Um, and that got me a job on um, Smack the Pony. Which was just starting. Love that show. And uh, Bob the Builder. So, Love that show too. <laughs> the both shows with the in the middle. There's no other kind of you know, comparison <laughs> really. And then, um, yeah, and then that it was working with Victoria Pyle, who was the producer of yes. About the Pony. Yeah. And then Greenwing happened, and I sort of blundered into the office for another reason, realised they were doing something. Well, that, we just stop for a Sucked. second there. Greenwing. So that's like, yes. that's like that's like one of the great comedy TV landmarks of the last sort of twenty years or so. Isn't I it? agree. I mean, I mean, people, I mean, it was just, it was just a game changer. And I'm not quite sure what about the, what about Green Wing I, I found particularly game changing. I think it was that it was, it kind of played like a drama. Yes. But it was more surreal than most comedies. Yes. We, we pitched, they said, can we have a Channel 4? If we did the first series, they said, can we have some sort of like tagline for it? And we had to go look at what a tagline was because we didn't know. Yeah. And we ended up going with uh, shallow drama with very deep comedy. Oh, nice. And I felt like, well, that's kind of accidentally almost kind of what it Morning. is. Morning. Hello. Um, we kind of wrote it like it was a sketch show. We wrote it in the most inefficient way possible because it spun out of Smack the Pony. Yes. It spun out of, they said, can we put all the, um, oh, it's very blowy. We might, never mind, I'm sure we'll be fine. Uh, we apologise for the blowy. Apologise for the blowy. We are, we are the wind. outdoors. This is, this is real, real action like, podcast. This is like K-A-D, frankly. Yes. We have in um, yeah, it's fun to smack the pony with the medical sketches. Channel 4 said, could you put those together into a, like six half-hour sitcoms? Mm. So they got some writers together, and in the end they said, we've got eight hour-long episodes, is that the same? And they said, no. <laughs> and then we said, oh, actually, we've split eight into 8A eight and 8B. That's nine, really, isn't it? And they went, oh, for, oh, for God's sake. Anarchy. Anarchy. So uh, it kind of just sort of became the same thing. But we wrote it like it says loads of us writing it. That's why was, I'm happy to take praise for it, because there's loads of us, so I feel like it's just my small bit. But we wrote it like it was a sketch show, so we wrote like each episode was about 180 pages or something, about wow, two hours long. seriously? Huge. That's incredible. And we filmed that each episode was also about two hours long, so we just edited down and down and down and down. And were you, can I just interrupt you yeah. a second, were you, as the writers, were you involved in the editing, the cutting room process? Because it seems to me that an editor could run amok with that in a good way or in a bad way oh, and yeah. destroy everything you were trying to achieve. And comedy is about timing after all, so... How did, did were you involved in that process? Yeah, we, we were allowed to be. So the Vic, who's the producer, she wasn't a writer, mm. but she was a very hands-on kind of producer. So she directed it, co-directed it as well. So she was sitting on the editing suite. We were very much allowed to sit in on the editing suite, and she liked us to come in, especially with comedy takes. Because I go in and um, there'd be a scene, I just laugh at something, and she go, what, "What was that? What was that?" I was like, "Oh, it's just that." that line there she goes because oh, I've seen it seven times I no longer know what's funny or you start laughing at a thing in the background or something really so you need someone who's fresh to it so we, yes. a lot of writers would go into the editing suite and, and and you sort of get very uh unprecious is that a word it is because yes. sometimes they fight for, they, they'll fight to keep a joke in and if it's your joke you go actually that doesn't I don't, I'm not bothered 
But it's not, the bit after it is the funny do, bit. Do you think comedy is more brutal in the editing process? I mean, uh, script editing as well as picture editing. Do you think comedy is more brutal than drama in that regard? I don't think it's brutal. I think it's more kind of surgical. Right. I think you're much less precious about... You just keep what's funny, really. Yeah. Um, and but I funny think is subjective, so how do, it you, is subjective. how do you square that circle? Uh, I, you do, I keep it in what makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's my <laughs> okay. idea. So it's completely subjective. So everything. You, everything. Don't, you don't touch your script at all, I do don't, you? No, I don't. No. Well, no, it's just the weird thing is, yeah, you just... So sometimes you write a line, yeah. and in, Mark, in uh, Greenwing, Mark Heap would just raise an eyebrow. Yes. And you go, right, we don't need the line, you just have Mark raising an eyebrow. Got it. That's fine. And I'll still take credit for it, it's fine. So, um, you, you know, you have a different hat on, I suppose, when you're in the editing room. But I didn't do, I mean, we had proper editors, but they were very happy for us to come in and out. And I think, I don't know, do you, um, do you sit in the editing room for your... I absolutely do. I, I, so I'm absolutely, um, I love the cutting room. And... Um, uh, as an EP on an executive producer, if anyone doesn't know Dying. what EP is, is an executive yeah. producer with the emphasis on the executive, uh, which means obviously at six o'clock I have to have a, a, a scotch and soda because that's what executives do. Yeah, um, uh, yeah as, an, as an EP, I, I have a lot of um, input into the cutting room um, and I really love it. Um, I find it is that sort of cliche of making the show all over again. And someone once said, you make it three times. You, you, you tell the story once on paper, then you reinterpret it when you're filming it, and then you reinterpret it again in the cutting room. The thing about cutting and editing, and I think James is speaking to this as well, and I get the feeling you'd be sympathetic to this idea, is that editing is probably the bit of filmmaking that is closest to writing. Yeah. Because it's all about structure and um, timing. Whereas production is really all about moving an army around in the rain, complaining about the catering. <laughs> the catering is 90% of it. The catering is about 90% yeah. of filmmaking. And, and sort of everyone just kind of being in the middle of a maelstrom of, let's just get through the day and get everything down in the day that we want to get down. Um, you really don't see the wood for the trees until you're back in the cutting room. And then the story becomes... But what I always insist on is that the editor, first of all, and the director, just cuts the damn thing into story order, script order, so that everything I wrote is there on the screen for me to have a look at. And the director can do their cut as well, which is great and wonderful, but I want to be able to just see the whole thing in story order. Because that's when... And I will be as tough as anyone about saying we don't need that, we can cut through that, we can discard that. But you have to be able to see it first before you can make those judgments, oh. I think. Yeah, I, I wonder if, because with comedy, I think you find a lot more of it in the edit. I, my, 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 I feel like you find more of it in the edit. I feel like when you've filmed mm. it, mm. it's only 50% done. Yeah. And then you can still chuck out a huge amount of stuff with comedy. You can end up a completely different ending. It almost doesn't matter. With drama, I feel like you've got to have it a lot more locked down. Well, you're absolutely right. Although, interestingly, I made a mini-series for the US a, a few years ago called Childhood's End, based on a, an Arthur C. Clarke story. And um, we actually created a new story strand in the cutting room Ooh. because we felt that there was a bit in the third episode. It was a three-parter, and the third episode lacked... There was a moment where it lacked a bit of immediate uh, jeopardy. And so we were humming and whoring in the cutting room about what we could do about this. And we, had, we knew that one of the characters, he dropped in blithely, one of the characters did have access to a nuclear weapon um, <laughs> and was going to use that nuclear weapon. Stolen from Greenwing. Yes, stolen from Greenwing. Um, and was going to use that nuclear weapon, the denouement, the tragic denouement of the story. Um, myself and the fellow EP, a, a gentleman called Akiva Goldsman, who, um, big producer, wrote A Beautiful Mind and... 
also wrote Batman and Robin. <coughs> moving on. Uh, moving on. Moving on. Um, speaking of style, it wasn't, we're not... Uh, we're actually know. climbing a style. We're climbing a style. We're not reacting that viscerally <laughs> to Batman and Robin. <laughs> no. um, he, he, he and I sat there and Akiva said, well, could we give this character a, nu a nuclear weapon in his house? Could he be hiding it in his house? It was a post-apocalyptic sort of future dystopian world, so that was possible. Uh, the only problem is we hadn't filmed that. <laughs> we hadn't. Um, we didn't have a nuclear vessel um, in available to us. Um, so in the cutting room, we put together a sequence where two characters were rowing about something completely different, and discovered that occasionally the camera, the director would call cut, but the camera would keep rolling, and one of the actors would be sort of looking around, like sort of looking for his mark, maybe looking for a coffee, maybe waiting for somebody to come and you know adjust his hair run or down. Run yeah. him down with a towel. Run him down with a towel. And while he's looking around, it looked like he was shifting, like he caught sight of something that really disturbed him. So we Ooh. cut that shot in, and then we cut in a shot, again from what we call the B-roll, just the sort of the, 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 the loose ends of, 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 of a shoot, of a corner of the set. And then we used the uh, magic of uh, VFX to put in a small nuclear device behind his, his desk. <laughs> so the man who didn't know that the bomb was there suddenly looked like a man who went, what the? Is that? There's something over there in the corner of the room. Is it a nuclear warhead? It sounds a bit pony, but um, it, it kind of worked. Certainly no one picked us up on it and said um, that, 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 did, that part of the story didn't work. So. It's the bits you think people are going to go, oh no, yeah. no, I can't suspend this. It's absolutely fine. I think people have, we cut, I think, sure it's in Greaming, that we cut, there's a line of dialogue that got missed, and we ended up cutting someone in the car with their head away from the camera. Just did ADR, put the line on over that, and then uh, sort of went. I mean, yes. I think yeah, the whole thing was in the car. Yes. But they were wearing a completely different coat, <laughs> and no one even noticed that we just cut two people in the car. Suddenly, someone's wearing a different coat, looking out of the window, and you can't see her face while she says, says the line in quotes because she's there. And then cut. And that, no one cared. No one cared. It just I mean, kept, keep it moving. But that's one of the. That's okay. So that's one of the technical aspects, the craft aspects of screenwriting, script writing is um, what we call ADR, automatic dialogue replacement. Um, which is a, a, a way of basically, well, sometimes can be a way for producers to rewrite the entire story <laughs> and or re, re, change the character um, in post-production. But it's basically a way to plug any gaps that we might feel exist in the story where maybe two characters are walking away from each other and we suddenly realise it would be really nice if one of them just said, to hell with you as they left. Well, their back is to the camera, so we get the actor in and the actor just says, to hell with you and it just adds a nice little punctuation so that sort of thing or sometimes the sound isn't recorded very well there's a glitch on the sound so we re-record the existing lines but ADR is an interesting one because all writers have to suddenly do an ADR pass they get a very nice sound editor who comes to them and says we need three and a half minutes of 42 different people at a dinner party at a party <laughs> in a in a nice Islington flat all talking and we can ad lib it, but we'd rather you wrote all the dialogue. And you spend hours. Oh, God. Hours. I wrote the other day, actually, well, a few weeks ago, I wrote for The Spanish Princess a sequence in which, in the background, the deep background, none other than Thomas More, Sir Thomas More is talking to a young boy and he's teaching him something from a book. And the dialogue editor wanted actually about one minute and 20 seconds worth of Thomas More. I researched. Um, Seneca and Plato. Oh my lord. And I discovered a whole thing about um, Plato's theory on monarchy. And so I had a whole 80 seconds <laughs> of wonderful Andrew Buchan, um, an actor from Broadchurch you may know, uh, as Thomas More, so, for speaking for almost a minute and a half about Plato 
and I watched the final dub the other day. You can't hear can't. a bloody thing. I'll be honest, I would be so tempted to do that. Is it Lorem Ipsum? You know, when you cut and paste that sort of Latin looking text that you just yeah. bulk out. <laughs> just, just read some Lorem Ipsum. I, to be honest, I, I might as well have just had him say a long time ago in a galaxy far, <laughs> far away. It's a period of civil war in the galaxy. I mean, you know, someone's going to pick up on it, I think. If, if you don't do it properly, yep. especially now, it's all, all DVD and streaming with the young people, but people go into it in such detail that you don't, if you don't put that level of detail in, someone will notice. This so is true. It will, it will be appreciated in notice if you do Let's hope so. Yeah, Let's hope I so. think so. So, um, so do you see yourself, do you see yourself as a comedy writer, James? Or do you see yourself as a writer of comedy who um, would write, you know, would you, okay, so would you Ooh. ever write your Schindler's List? Would you ever write that, mm. that story about... <laughs> Yeah, but I'd make it funny. Of course. It would be a funny Schindler's List if I wrote it. <laughs> hey. You didn't, it'd be slab, sly, slapping, sort of brilliant. Um, mm, I do, I seem to describe myself as a comedy writer. I mean, not, you know, I meet the postman and stuff like that, but um, I'm quite happy with the comedy writer thing. I mean, I write, so I do write drama, but whenever I, tr I write what I think is like quite, a, I wrote a sort of post-apocalyptic thing, uh, slightly too close to lockdown now. Now it's all, it's all been done in real life. But the producer, the first person who read it said, what I love about this. And I was thinking, you know, this is quite grim and quite serious. He went, I love how you put so many jokes in it. <laughs> I, like, I, don't, I don't remember any jokes in it, but it's just like funny because, you know, people are funny. So I think I'm always going to sort of veer towards that. I think it's true to say as well that, you know, comedy exists in drama and exists in our real life and it runs alongside it anyway. I mean, and I don't even just mean humour, I mean actual comedy. I mean, you can't turn on the news these days without, frankly, well, through your tears, <laughs> laughing at the ludicrous. It's, yes, there's madness. I, I, I saw a woman today it was on Twitter and she's got like 400,000 followers. And she's, um, she's some kind of um, shock jock in the, in the United States. And she's claiming now that a year ago, the masked singer, that the, the reality show, the masked singer, had been subtly introduced by the powers that be <laughs> in conjunction with the media oh, to warm us up to the idea yeah. of wearing masks. I hadn't thought of that. No, yeah. no. And yet, indeed, I couldn't think of that because it's insane. It's insane. But also, that is the There's realm logic. of comedy. That yeah. is undoubtedly comedy. But you've got, I like that. So you're right, uh, Spanish princess. Yes. Uh, there was just a lovely, funny little bit in that talking about rain. I mean, talk oh, about that because yes. I love that, that, that bit. So, do you yes. need to explain what it is? Um, uh, so, yes, Catherine of Aragon coming over to marry Prince Arthur. She, she did, of course, eventually marry Henry VIII, but she was actually betrothed to his younger brother, the rather sickly um, Prince Arthur. If, you, if you've ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I was thinking that exact thing. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one, you know, one day, son, yeah, all man. this will be yours. Well, the curtains. <laughs> no, beyond the curtains. Um, Yes, so uh, wonderfully played by um, uh, Amelia Imry's um, son, um, Angus Imry. Um, and uh, he's, he's very nervous. He's just met his new bride and she's very gorgeous and he's a bit of a geek. And they're taking a walk in the grounds of his house and he sort of says, she goes, oh, it's raining. He goes, well, no, this isn't rain. She goes, well, it is. He goes, no, 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 it's... Um, yeah, we have different types of rain. This isn't actually rain, this is mizzle. But we also have, you know, dancing dollies, we have spitting, we have uh, downpours, we have um, drizzle. And she's from Spain, there's hardly any rain in Spain. <laughs> Falls mainly on the plane. Legendarily, anyway. yeah. Yes. So she, <clears throat> she, she's completely baffled by this. Yes, I, funnily enough, I actually had to fight for those lines. I bet you did, though. I'm not surprised. Also, it's not characters making jokes. It's not like, oh, hey, let's make some jokes. No. It's a character being perfectly sincere and accidentally saying something that's very funny. Well, the one bit we had to cut out, um, I lost the battle on one bit, which is when he says, when you marry me, I, I promise I'll be, very, um, I'll be very respectful and I'll be attentive to your needs. 
And she says, to my knees. And he goes, no, your needs. I will be attentive to your needs. Now, the, the, it's played by this, these two actors very straight. It's not played comedy. It's not broad. No. Um, and our American cousins on the show were, were, were like, um, I think this is a bit too silly. And I said, but you do know that people can misunderstand foreign languages. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, a, it's, not, a, it's not beyond, it's not like he falls on a banana skin, you know. Yeah. Well, the trombone goes. Exactly. Hello, Just give us some mud. Hello. Cheers. <laughs> Hello. So, it, it, but of course, you know, humour is, of course, subjective. But it, sometimes people do see what is considered to be a, a perfectly good piece of character-based humour in a drama as somehow something that's too farcical and it removes you. I always go back to um, one of my favourite writers of all time, Alan Bleasdale. And he wrote a masterpiece called um, The Boys from the Black Stuff about unemployment and, and men, particularly men who just were in a place of utter hopelessness uh, because they couldn't get work. And there was a character called Yossa Hughes, played by Bernard Hill in one of his first, well, his breakthrough role. And in it, Yossa, who's a violent and damaged human being, is at his wit's end and he goes into a church and he sits in the confessional and the priest comes and sits in the other part of the confessional box and he says, how can I help you, my son? And, and, and this, is a this is a really dramatic scene. And Yossa is crying. This big man is crying. And he says, Father, I'm desperate, Father. I'm desperate, Father. And the priest says, please call me Dan. And he says, I'm desperate, Dan. <laughs> and to those who know the Beano, Desperate Dan was a character in the Beano, um, a comic. It's a moment of slightly forced humour, slightly forced, yeah. but it's, it's also beautiful. It's lovely. Yeah, and it's how you play them. It's, uh, some of those things in script look a bit wah wah, and then when you when it's played straight by really good actors, they'll go past it before you realise. Yeah. Nice, I love that kind of thing. I really like it. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh man, I hope you can hear this over the blowing of the wind. But it's yes, beautiful. It's absolutely stunning out it's here lovely. today that the wind is picking up. Oop, more dogs. Hey, dog. Hiya. Morning. Hiya. So yeah, so the thing. What have you been editing lately? Talk, talk me through the Spanish princess, which you and Emma Frost. Uh, Emma Frost, working yes. on. Yes, um, mighty Emma well, Frost. Well, uh, yes, it's um, season two of a of a show for stars. We'll go to style. Hang on. Over a style. Over a style. <sighs> Trying not to drop this in the pond. Yes, it's a show. Um, it's the sequel to the the the, the first six uh, eight episodes we did, story of Catherine of Aragon and um, Henry VIII. And um, yeah, we've um, we finished filming literally the day that global production shut down march the i'm gonna say it was like march the 11th i think Sounds and right. then we did all our post editing work in um in lockdown which was initially very disconcerting for everyone but we you know we adapted um and um very proud i don't think we'd be able to tell i don't think there's too much tape on the screen holding everything together <laughs> no cardboard cutouts no cardboard in the background cutouts. yeah Mm, uh, yeah, but that's a drama that is, I suppose, you know, has that is absolutely a, a, a drama drama, but it's also something where it's crazy not to have some element of, of humour. And funny enough, in historical drama, people seem to regard humour as even more of a potential threat, that yeah. it undermines the credibility of history. But I've always been, you know, I've always been very, again, very mindful of the fact that you can't treat history with kid gloves. You have to sort of remember that people were sarcastic, people cracked jokes, 
people were silly and flirtatious and they, they didn't just walk around saying I'm in history. I think the shadow of Monty Python just looms over yeah. every historical drama series ever. Right? <laughs> Producers worry about that too much. It's like, I know audiences can understand that this isn't Monty Python, it's absolutely fine. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, we did have sometimes moments when we were filming our recreation of London in the early 1500s and there was a moment when I had to sort of say to them, I think we need to cut this shot out because there'd be an old man in a very silly hat with a goat and looking aimless, looking like he, <laughs> he, he'd been given the goat, he'd been told, right, you're playing a goat, man, just be in the background with your goat. And he had no idea what he was supposed to do with the goat and the goat didn't want to move. And I, I'm afraid all I could think of was Life of Brian. Oh, I've got, he's not well again with a donkey strung over her shoulder. And I just, oh. Yeah. So, yes. He's, he's got to go. He's got to go. Two Python. <laughs> oh. Well, we've almost made it to we've Milo. All, we're almost at Milo. Maybe we should stop now. Look at the. Oh, my favourite noise ever. Hopefully we can get a coffee. We'll get a coffee. But my favourite noise is when you get all the boats out like that. Yeah. I'm talking something like that. You can't see them. There's lots and lots of. They are beautiful. Sailing boats, all, and you get the sort of clinking noise mm. of, the, of the line sort of clinking against the mast. I can't see any spinnakers. I wish I could see some spinnakers, but I can't see um, spinnakers. And I, well, I hope everybody that that's cleared up the entire uh, pantheon of script writing. From, you're all good to go. You're all good. Basically, you know everything you need to know. Wait, wait, my hand is. I'm going to try and turn it off. Now my hand is sort of frozen. Oh, oh my god. <laughs>